Well, again, I want to invite you to turn with me to, to Colossians chapter 1. We began last week a new series of sermons here at First Pres through Paul's letter to the Colossians that we're calling Christ Above All. And we're calling it Christ Above All because that's really the theme of Paul's letter to the Colossians. He wants us and he wanted that church to see Jesus as truly being preeminent, as being supreme, as being sufficient, more valuable than anything else in the world that is tempting our hearts to focus our attention upon. So we're going to discover a little bit of that all throughout the course of this book, and we're going to discover it today as we read verses 3 through 8. So let's now give attention to the reading of God's word from Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fall. The word of our God stands forever. Well, if I were a betting man... I would bet that one of the things that probably irks you the most, that gets under your skin, is when you do something kind for someone, you you extend a friendly gesture to them, and they respond with a just tremendous lack of thankfulness. Right? That probably bothers you. Not, Not only when they don't express any thankfulness for something kind that you've done for them, but they actually uh, grumble about it and, and complain about it. You, you know what this is like if you are an employer and you are working for the well-being of your employees, but all you hear is grumbling in the background. Or if, if you're a parent, if you've cooked your child's favorite meal 50 times in a row and they've just gobbled it up and you cook it the 51st time and they decide that they don't like it anymore and they want something else and they start to complain about it. You know what that feels like. The, the, the life tends to just get sucked right out of your body. You almost feel like dead weight. Nobody likes an unthankful person. We don't like to be around people who are not particularly thankful. But then I look at my own life and I discover that I'm one of the unthankful people. There's things that I can complain and and gripe about all the time. That's just part of my DNA, despite the fact that I got up this morning in an air-conditioned house and I had a gourmet breakfast consisting of orange juice and a chocolate donut from Krispy Kreme. And I enjoyed wonderful fellowship, and I will also have a great lunch and a great dinner, and I will go to bed in a comfortable bed tonight. All of that is part of my ordinary existence. That's not an abnormal day, and yet I can be a remarkably unthankful person. I wonder if you can relate to that at all. Strangely enough, though, I am thankful for the Bible. John Stott, probably the greatest evangelical theologian of the past hundred years, passed away this week. Um, 
he is someone worth reading anything you can get your hands on that he's written. And he once said that the Bible is the portrait of Christ. The Bible is the portrait of Christ. It means that when we read God's word to us, we get to see what God is really like. You get to see what Jesus is really like. And when you discover what Jesus is really like, it makes you a remarkably thankful person. You know, you discover in this passage that Paul, he is a sinner just like anybody else. I mean, he he fought the same battles with the flesh and with his desires that brought him away from God. He fought those same things that you and I fight. But when you get into a passage like this, you start to, to see that his understanding of Jesus and what he does in the lives of his people is something that gave him great cause to be thankful. You remember that This letter that he's writing, he's writing from a Roman prison. He's writing from a prison cell to a church several hundred miles away that he has never met. He's only met maybe a few members of that particular church. And he's in prison because he has faithfully preached the gospel. Not because he was particularly subversive or was doing anything illegal, just because he was preaching the gospel. And he's there at least with Timothy and Epaphras. Epaphras was the person who planted the church in Colossae. And he says in the midst of his hardships, in the midst of being unjustly imprisoned, he says this. He says, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. See, Epaphras had come from Colossae to Rome to report to Paul what was going on in that church. And so what Paul does is he reports back to that church in Colossae. And he says that whenever they get together to pray, which was a regular thing that they did, these three men at least got together regularly to pray. When they did so, they always prayed for that church in Colossae. And when they prayed for that church in Colossae, they extended thanks to God for what he had done in that church. And notice this as well. He does not thank the Colossians themselves for getting their act together. He does not thank the Colossians for getting on the right track with God, for doing all the right stuff. He doesn't thank them directly. He thanks God for doing his work in the life of this Colossian church. There were two things that we can discover from this short passage that we just read that were true of Paul and that I long to see become increasingly true of you and of me. These two things were this. He was a prayerful person and he was a thankful person. He was prayerful and he was thankful. This is a church that was regularly prayed for by Paul and his friends. And the reason why is because they knew that if that church was to grow and to flourish and if people were to treasure Christ and to see him as being above all, worthy of building their life upon, it was going to have to be God that was going to do that work through them. God was going to have to make that happen. And so if you look down to to verse 9, this is a passage that we're going to look at more next week, you'll notice that they made it a regular practice to ask God to fill them with this, with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What a great prayer. 
that's a great prayer. They're not just praying for the infirmities and the sicknesses and the broken bones and the difficult situations of the church, as important as all of that is. His sights are on something much bigger, much grander, much more Christ-focused. We all have needs in this church, and we discover many of those on the prayer list that's included in your bulletin. I would encourage you to pray through those things. But can I at least challenge you this? To pray for one another in this church. To pray for one another in this church, just as Paul prayed for that church in Colossae. Pray some of those same things. Make it a a regular part of your life to to pray for the elders in this church and the deacons in this church and, and the leaders in the various women's ministries and children's ministries and other ministries and just to pray for, for people that you know in this church who are struggling or who do need to grow, which pretty much consists of everybody. That's what we see here happening in the life of Paul. That was just part of his rhythm of life. I want to challenge you to make it part of your rhythm as well because if First Presbyterian Church is to be a growing, thriving, flourishing church for another 120 years, if Christ should not come back before then, then the only way that that's going to happen is if God heaps out grace upon grace upon us and if He pours out His power and if He does His work in this church, He's going to have to make that happen. It's not something that you and I can, can just pull together on our own. This church is not going to flourish because of our own native strength. Because of the intelligence or the giftedness of her people. Or even because of our morality. It's, it's not going to happen that way. It's going to happen when the Holy Spirit penetrates our hearts. And he penetrates our children's hearts. And he weaves into the lives of people in this community who right this second couldn't give a flip about Jesus Christ. That's how that's going to happen. For generations and generations to come, it's going to have to be God who does the work. We must be a dependent people. We must realize that we are a dependent people and and beg God for His grace to sustain this church. It's going to happen as people across Biloxi and even in ourselves are weaned off of our puny, weak little idols. And we begin to see Jesus for who he actually is. And we need to pray that he will make that happen. Paul and the crew here were a prayerful people, part of their regular life, but they were also a very thankful people. This church in the city of Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey, Um, had imbibed some false teaching along the way. It was an imperfect church. At this point in time, it's maybe about ten years old. There was no one in the church who had been a believer probably for more than ten years. So there were all sorts of immaturities that had to have been going on in this church. But Paul does not lead with a criticism towards it. And notice that his prayer isn't fundamentally about fixing the Colossians, fixing all the problems that are going on there. What he leads with is thankfulness. He's thankful for what God is doing in this church. His heart is tilted in the direction of love towards this church and compassion towards it, despite all the failures and despite the weaknesses and sin that do exist there. You know, I meet a lot of 
church members in, in this church and other churches all over the place and, and other ministers and other congregations who can get discouraged by what is going on in their, their respective churches. This past week I had a, a conversation with a, a very good pastor friend of mine who was discouraged about some of the things going on in his church. The, the fact that so many people are unresponsive to the gospel. They have a very ho-hum attitude towards their own growth and grace and, and their own children's growth as well. They, he's discouraged by the lack of intentional concern and love for one another that he sees in his congregation. And that's by no means speaking of the whole congregation. It only takes a few people to drag in a big black cloud. But the fact of the matter is this, he's discouraged by some of those things that he sees. And I'm sure that you can understand that. I mean, if you've been to a church for more than three Sundays in your entire life, you will discover that it has some dysfunctionalities to it. There are things about it that are not just right. And it can be remarkably discouraging. It can be unsettling in the church to see all the things that are not right. But the deal is this. As long as you have sinners in the church, there's going to be discouragement. That's just the reality. The only church that doesn't have discouragement is the church in heaven, and that's because there aren't any sinners in it. But the church here is full of them. In fact, that's the only qualification that you must have in order to be part of the church. You have to be a sinner in order to be part of the church. And that's why it's all broken and messed up and not right. But despite all the things that are not right in this church, in every other church that you'll ever go to, and in this particular church in Colossae, I think one of the lessons that we discover here is that we can be thankful for God's work in the church. Paul is thankful for God's work in this church that is not right. And for us as members at First Presbyterian, or as people who just regularly come here, I think it's important that we understand this. It's important that we understand that Jesus loves First Presbyterian Church in Biloxi. He loves this church so much so that he wasn't even that he was not even willing to spare his own life. He gave up his life for the church all over the world, but for this particular church. He's working here. He's doing incredible things in your lives, and it's so encouraging for me to see that. But from our perspective, it can seem very slow. It can seem very imperfect. But the fact of the matter is, is that he loves this church. And so because he loves this church to the point of giving his own life for her, who are we not to love one another as well? Who are we not to intentionally extend love for one another in this church? Before we run to fix the problems and before we complain about how things aren't just as right as they should be, why not first stop to give thanks to God that the gospel is preached here and it's believed here? That this is a church where people are in fact growing in their wisdom and in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a place where children are being discipled to treasure God. It's, it's a place where people are repenting and believing in the gospel, however imperfectly. 
That's something that we ought to thank God for because as you look across this city and across this land, you will discover all sorts of places that call themselves churches and have crosses on them and people sitting in them and they're not hearing the gospel preached and they are not growing and there's nothing of Christ at all in them. We ought to be remarkably thankful that for 120 years, he's done amazing things in this church. He's kept it on the right track. It's something for which we can be thankful. Prayerfulness and thankfulness. Those are a couple things that we see out of Paul and his friends here. It's how he leads into this book when he does have to say a hard word to this church. He begins with that. I think it's good for us to have that in our hearts and in our minds. Well, what was he so thankful for? Why was he thankful? I think when you look at verses 4 and 5, you see at least three things. Three things that he's thankful for. He's thankful, first of all, for their faith in Christ Jesus. Secondly, he's thankful for the hope of heaven that Jesus provides for them in the gospel. And he's thankful that that hope that they have is producing love for one another. He's thankful for their faith, he's thankful for the hope that they have, and he's thankful for the love that they extend. Faith, hope, and love. Paul zeroes in on those three things quite a bit in this passage. In fact, he touches on that in some of his other letters as well. And you'll notice of him speaking of those dimensions of the Christian life. They're probably familiar to you. Even if you're a person who isn't that well acquainted with Christianity or... or, is not that engaged in the life of the church, you'll just notice that that triad is a, is a rather significant thing. You don't have to know it from going to the church. You can figure that out by going to Hobby Lobby or to Kirkland's and finding a cute little piece of home decor that was made in a sweatshop in China that has a beautiful font that says Faith, Hope, and Love on it. You can buy it for twenty nine ninety nine. It can get a little trivialized when it becomes a a product that you can buy. But I want us to resist the urge to trivialize faith, hope, and love as a feel-good slogan. Because what Paul wants us to see here is that these these are fundamental to the Christian life. They're fundamental virtues of the Christian. They're, 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 in many respects, a barometer of your own spiritual maturity. They're, they're indicators of your spiritual health. Look for, with me for a minute about what Paul has to say about faith. He says that he's thankful ever since he heard of their faith in Christ Jesus. What's he mean by that? He's thankful that the Colossians are a dependent people. That they've come to see themselves as needy and helpless and hopeless apart from the work of Jesus Christ for them in the gospel. He's thankful that they've come to see that they have no eternal hope apart from Jesus Christ. No hope apart from what he's done for them. He's, he's come to, see, to, to, to be thankful that in their faith they've come to see that in Jesus Christ. He's given them a reason to live for something other than just keeping their nerve endings comfortable. 
He's thankful that they've come to see that, that, that they can come to love one another because of Jesus' love for them. Their, their, their faith has shown them that. They express love for one another, and they give appearance in the church and in the community that something redemptive has happened there. They're not the same people that they were ten years ago. And that's because of what Christ has done in them. Faith in Christ, my friends, was not native to the Colossians, and it's not native to us. That's why Paul thanks God for their faith and not the Colossians for their faith. We don't come to see ourselves as being dependent, needy, hopeless people unless Christ and his spirit enlivens us, unless he comes and does the work. And that's what he's saying here about the Colossian church. If you're a person who rests in Jesus, who believes in Jesus, who no longer trusts in yourself, but trusts in Christ's work to save you and give you the hope of glory, then it's not something that you can pat yourself on the back for. It's it's something that you have to give thanks to God for because you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You and I, we were not sick We were not infirmed. We were not weak. We were dead in our trespasses and sins completely. And dead people can't do anything. They can't bring themselves to life. They can't make choices. They can't do any of that. It it takes God to bring new life to a dead sinner. Just as he brought Lazarus back to life, so he brings us out of our deadness and our trespasses and sins and brings us hope and sets our souls free to worship and to enjoy him and to have faith in him. That's why he says that faith is a gift. It's not something that we just bought into a good sales pitch. It's something that God gives to us. And so he's thankful for their faith in Jesus Christ that God has given to them. But I want you to notice this as well about their faith. Their faith was something that Paul had heard of. He heard of their faith. That means that there was a public aspect to it. Of of course, our faith is a personal faith. There's an individual dimension to our faith. We have a personal relationship with God. There are private aspects to our faith. But the fact of the matter is this. It was abundantly clear that their faith was visible, that the Colossians' faith was visible. It had teeth to it. It was a public faith. In other words, when they, when they professed that they believed in Jesus Christ, it actually made a difference in the way in which they lived amongst one another and in their public lives together. And so if your faith is real, it's going to make a difference, isn't it? It's going to make a remarkable difference in the way in which you live. People who have a genuine, tried and true faith in Jesus Christ are people who are going to love one another and serve one another. They're going to be people who are increasingly patient and kind to one another. They're not going to be people who are about seeking revenge, holding grudges, putting down people, tearing them down. They're not going to be fundamentally about that. They're going to be people who live and do life with a sense of integrity and honesty and excellence. In other words, my friends, there are going to be people other than yourself 
who are going to be able to testify to the fact that you are not full of beans when you say that you believe in Jesus Christ. That's one of the reasons why we take membership so seriously here. You can go to a church, you can call yourself a Christian, but who can give account to that other than yourself? We take it seriously because we're saying there's signs that you actually believe. There's signs in your own life that you actually believe. And for the Colossians, that was the case. Paul had heard of their faith and he had seen that it actually was real and genuine. Here's another thing about their faith that I think that he wants us to see. Paul is thankful for their faith. Not just their faith in faith or their faith in a generic God, but their faith in particular in Christ Jesus. Period. You have to remember, this is a church that had been exposed to to false teaching. And at least one of the aspects of that false teaching was that they needed Jesus plus a little something else. Jesus plus something else to fill out the empty spots in their faith, in their own spiritual life. But Paul is thankful for their faith in Christ Jesus alone. He's subtly saying here that they have the real deal. They have the true gospel. He says it twice in this passage. They have the full truth of the gospel. and They do not need Jesus plus something else to build their identity upon or to give them eternal life or to give them hope. They didn't need any other object of their faith. He's pleased that they have their faith in Christ Jesus. Look, I want you to ask yourself this question. Look at your life. Do you believe, and does your life show, that you believe in the equation that Jesus plus nothing equals everything? Is that something that you believe? That even if your whole life falls apart, that you will still have ultimately what you need In Jesus Christ alone. You know, it's in those times of of crisis and of pain and of suffering that your faith is tested. Your faith is tested in times of war much more so than it is in times of peace. And so when you're in the battle, do you know that Jesus is all you need? Of course, He gives us. His church, of course He gives us things of that nature, but is Jesus all that you need? He wants them to see that they don't need a better gospel than the one they've already received. It can't be improved upon. Jesus has supplied all that they need. And He's given them hope because of it. That's the the second thing you see here, that that He has given them hope. An eternal hope. What what is hope? What does that even mean? You know, I I hope that right now, as we speak, our Congress and our president are getting their act together, and they can get this budget thing dealt with, so our economy can get out of the rut. I would really like to see that happen. I hope that it does. My beloved Arizona Wildcats football team, bless their hearts. They have to play three top ten teams on the road before the end of the month of September. And I just hope that their entire starting lineup doesn't get injured and they don't play themselves out of a bowl before October. My little boy was born with a cleft palate. He's going to have to have surgery on that probably in January. 
I hope that it's a minor thing. I hope that it's only one surgery and not two or three and that they're able to fix it and that all goes well with that. I hope for a lot of things. You hope for a lot of things. We all have these issues that we, that we hope for, but we have no idea whether or not they're going to come to pass. I, I don't know if any of those things are going to happen. You know, the, the subtle lie that Walt Disney has told us that is that when you wish upon a star, your dreams will come true. But the only people who believe that live in fantasy land. Because we know that's not the case. There's, there's no guarantee that our hopes are going to come to pass. And because that's the case, a lot of the things that we hope for actually produce anxiety in our lives, don't they? I mean, I, I, I have anxiety about my children and about their futures and about my own future and the things that I hope for. Because if they don't go a certain way, it's going to alter the course of my life in many respects. It makes me anxious more than it does produce love. But see, the, the hope that Paul is talking about here is a different kind of hope. It's a hope that's not producing anxiety. It's a hope that's producing love. You see the difference there? It's remarkably different. It's, it's not a hope that's subject to changing markets, to our personal well-being, our health, the, the actions or inactions of certain groups of people. It's a hope that's subject to the promise of God. It's a done deal. It's already provided for us. It's, it's the hope of heaven that is a promise to everybody who believes. And the difference between having the hope of heaven and the hope that the economy will improve is something that instills in us a love for one another. It instills in us a grateful, thankful, generous, humble heart. It, it, it moves us out of ourselves and causes us to, to love one another. And I want you to think about this. When, when you look across the world, when you scan the landscape of the world, think about all of the hospitals that were established by Christians. Think of all the great colleges and universities and schools that were established by Christians. Think of the rescue missions that you see in towns and cities all across America and the, the nonprofit organizations that go into the third world and provide real tangible relief and, and meet the needs of people. It's Christians that have historically done those things and who are currently doing those things. They're, they're serving the tangible needs of other people and their friends and their neighbors at home and abroad. It's because they're heavenly-minded people. A lot, of, a lot of people will accuse Christians of being heavenly-minded, and so because that's the case, they don't really care about this world. They don't, they don't care about improving the world and expressing love to our neighbors, but I think that when you look at the evidence, the absolute opposite is the case. Being a heavenly-minded person causes you to remember that you received heaven not by your own merits, but because of a gracious and compassionate God who loved you, not because you got your act together or because you were just so great, but because He's loving. For no other reason than that. It's pure, unmerited grace. Amazing love. How can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That's the Christian song. And you know that. That's how you get heaven. 
And it makes you such a grateful person that you move out of yourself and you move towards love towards one another because you've received so much love. Let me just say this before we go. Doctrine is important in a church. If you're here today for the first time, you're just looking for a church, it's important that you search for a church that loves the Word of God, that loves the Gospel, that loves Jesus Christ, and that has doctrine that is in line with what Scripture teaches. But I have to say this, it it doesn't matter what the church says that it believes on paper if the people don't love one another. I don't care what they say they believe if there's not a sense of love that the people have for one another because if there's no love in a church, what they say they believe and what they actually believe are two completely different things. Faith without love is going to make you a cold, hard, rigid, angry person. And love without faith will make you wishy-washy, compromising. The love that you have will be circumstantial. It's here today and gone tomorrow. But faith with love that is confident in the hope that Christ supplies for us is warm. It's compassionate. It's bold. It's uncompromising. It's intentional. And it bears beautiful good fruit to the world. So let's pray together now that this would be the case in your life and in our lives here together at First Presbyterian Church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a challenging word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. As we see this word and hear this word, we find ourselves to be neglectful of it, but we also at the same time to be, find ourselves to be people who have received abundant grace. So much reason to be prayerful and thankful You are the God who's given us faith. It's not something we manufactured in ourselves. You are the God who has given us a tried and true eternal hope. And any love that we extend to one another is something that you work out in us as well. And so we pray that that would be increasingly the case in our lives as individuals and as the body here at First Pres, so that our light would so shine before men that they would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.